0: Hello and welcome to the Future of Australia podcast. Here I interview the entrepreneurs running the fastest growing businesses in Australia. These interviews will be around the themes of entrepreneurship, new ideas, business, innovation, capitalism and successful enterprise being the motor that will drive Australia forward. I will be telling the stories of the people who are making it possible and as they grow and strive further will become a bigger and bigger part of Australia's future. My name is Derek Stewart, your host and the founder of Future of Australia. Check us out at futureofaustralia.com to learn more, subscribe to our newsletter, get exclusive content and ensure you never miss an episode. For questions or comments, email me at Derek, D-E-R-E-K, at futureofaustralia.com or you can call or text me on 0404-689-897. Welcome to episode 23 of the Future of Australia podcast. In this episode, I interview Terence Tam, the managing director and founder of Reflow Hub, a managed marketplace that facilitates mobile device returns, buybacks, and trade ins globally. We discuss
1: how they grew 1,247% last financial year to do 60 plus million in annual revenue to become the second fastest growing new business in Australia despite not being a product or even industry most people have heard of. We discuss how he continued to explore his curiosity in the decade plus of hard work, experiments and tinkering in multiple adjacent businesses and experiments which led to his present day success. From securing a banking job at 18 years old as the bank's youngest Asia-Pacific hire, to becoming disillusioned with the corporate banking world after the global financial crisis and wanting more from life to leverage global macro business trends and technologies. If you are looking for simplified device life cycle management, check out reflowhub.com. That's R-E-F-L-O-W-H-U-B.com. So I'm here with Terence Tam, the Managing Director of Reflow Hub. Thanks for coming on the podcast, Terence. Thank you, Derek. I'm, I'm, uh, you know, uh, happy to be here. That's good. So can you tell us what were you doing before you started Reflow Hub? What did you study? What types of organizations did you work in? Doing what sort of roles?
2: Yeah, so um, study-wise, I've always had a, a love of economics. Um, I did a bachelor's of economics, um, majored in economics and finance at uh, University of New South Wales. Um, like most people of Asian heritage, <laughs> um, it was either become some, something in banking Uh, be a lawyer or be a doctor so I chose to pursue a career in in finance Um, and I worked at a a large um, international conglomerate.
1: And so like you said there's a bit of family cultural pressure to go into banking were you genuinely interested in economics but not banking or was it all sort of again a bit of external pressure and and how did that compare to what you were personally interested in?
2: I think at, at that age um my mindset probably wasn't that clear like you know you'd like to think you're an independent person but you probably have a lot of influence from your parents um and you know your cousins and your relatives who who are also uh, pursuing you know like i guess um prestigious sort of uh roles in the economy but for me really um during high school like my love of economics is really about systems and understanding like you know uh, the rBA being able to pull these you know pull these levers you know with interest rates and whatnot that really affect um, the landscape that that we operate within, so it's really from a hobby perspective and just a pure intrigue uh, so obviously you know you you follow your passion and you've you've followed into into uni, mm-hmm. but you don 't quite think how do I make money from this right and mm. the obvious, The obvious answer to that is you know you work in the industry right mm. um, but yeah, i mean I, I soon found out that. Uh, Having an interest in in a topic and actually um, doing it on day to day and trying to um, add value to it and to your employers is a very different uh, a different wheelhouse.
1: Absolutely, and, and so you mentioned sort of systems thinking. So a lot of people with that mindset, I find, go into engineering. Was that an interest at all, or was it really the the economic sort of, like you said, monetary, budgetary sort of levers that were most interesting to you?
2: No, definitely um, engineering. I've, I've always had a lot of um, a lot of appreciation and respect for them i just to be honest like i just didn't think I, I was i was cut out for it um a lot of the guys that in my cohort that were looking at engineering civil mechanical um these guys were all you know top tier like math students right during during you know for us um in in uh, new south wales the hsc mm-hmm. they were doing the top level maths and um i'm thinking look if i can't handle you know this level of mathematics i'm like university is just going to be it's going to be a, bit of a grind.
1: Okay, and did you ever consider being like an economist in a government department, a think tank inside a bank, or was it more the um, finance side you were sort of looking to? Sort of once you were looking your final year towards the sort of starting your professional career.
2: Yes, so I, I mean, I had been captivated by the the finance markets, right? Mm-hmm. So even before we were sort of talking about you know what's what's causation, what's correlation, there is. Um, so many factors and variables that you need to look at and you're trying to distill what is affecting what, what is driving what. Mm. And I think like from a systems perspective, um, our economy is so complex that by simplifying the model, um, you can actually distill some influence. Um, so that was what really captivated me. And I thought, okay, well, with the, with the stock market and whatnot, I mean, you know, we all know the whole Wall Street story, you know, back in the 80s, 90s, mm. you know, the golden era, right? And um, I thought, like you know, this could be a fantastic opportunity to, to essentially um, trade other people's capital, right? And and you know, really work on a bonus commission basis. So yeah, definitely. Um, and hadn't that finance role?
1: Yeah. And so, what was your first job? So you're studying eco finance at uni. Um, what was your first sort of work experience, professional sort of work after after uni or during uni? Or
2: so it's, it's actually a bit of a funny story around that because. Um, I had essential. I've, I've always been, you know, um, quite a hard worker, you know, I've, I've never been the most capable, but I think, you know, for me, it's always about effort. Mm-hmm. Effort counts twice, um, you know, in, in that equation. And so I started applying for jobs immediately in my first year. Like, I think most of uh, my friends and, and um, you know, the rest of my cohort in, at uni at the time was um, you know working, trying to apply for jobs at cafes and retail and whatnot. Mm-hmm. I just went straight to the you know the banks. I went straight to the the management consultants. Um, the big four of everything, right? It <laughs> seems to be a big four of everything. So, mm. so I, I immediately started applying for for many. Um, application processes are super long. Um, I actually got caught in um, for an interview and um, at the bank. I mean. They, I think they had assumed that I was a graduate or, you know, in my <laughs> final year, uh, maybe I looked older with facial yeah. hair, I'm not too sure, but um, <laughs> I impressed them. And I think, you know, I was asked for a transcript and whatnot. I had said, um, oh, well, actually, I don't have my, my transcript yet because I'm, I'm still finishing off my, my semester two or first year. <laughs> so that kind of shocked them a little bit. And um, they said, oh, well, this is actually a graduate, a graduate position. It's full-time, you know, we can't, we can't cater to, to, um, you know, uh, full-time students. And then obviously I did the bag, you know, did the bend over backwards, you know, like I'll do anything for, for the <laughs> role. I'm just and, um, you know, I had just turned 18, you know, first in mm. uni. And um, yeah, look, they had they had really, I think, liked that, that ambition, that mm. uh, commitment. They said, look, you know, if you want me to put me on, on uh, probation for a year, then I'm happy to do that. Um, they end up putting me on probation for six months, which mm-hmm. um, I think in the wide scheme of things, I don't think that's too long, but mm-hmm. as a 18 year old, I thought six months is a very, very long time, <laughs> uh, but, you know, all my best behavior. But yeah, like, I mean, these guys gave me a big break. I took the job. Um, my role was a corporate, corporate action officer. Mm-hmm. Essentially I looked after corporate events um, that were, you know, public, Um, that would affect, you know, equity or debt. So typically, you know, uh, mortgage-backed securities or any sort of dividend payouts. um, If our institutional clients at the time, such as um, like in in super funds, Mm -hmm. if they were doing dividend reinvestment plans, I would execute that and rebalance their portfolios um, accordingly.
1: And and did some of your colleagues or clients sort of catch on to the fact that you were 18 and not, you know, 22, 23, like a, a graduate or a postgraduate? Uh, well,
2: I think it was from day one. I mean, they all knew because um, we, you know, like like many corporates, you go through two, three interviews. Um, mm-hmm. I, I, you know, uh, ignorantly thought, oh, it's one interview. You know, you get an offer and then you, you start. <laughs> I mean, uh, yeah, I they put me through the the ringer. Went through, I think it was three interviews. Mm-hmm. Um, and and yeah, I mean, obviously, my direct manager interviewed me. I believe in the second and third third mm-hmm. rounds. And so I think it was quite apparent that I was the youngest hire in in Asia Pacific for this bank. Mm. And it's it's an international uh, conglomerate. So I think I was a little bit proud by that fact, but I was also daunted because that puts a spotlight on you. I mean, I'm still an 18-year-old first-year kid who doesn't really know much, right? I mean, it's all textbook and theory Mm. um, at the time. So uh, yeah, definitely. Um, They all knew.
1: Okay, indeed. I mean, what do you think they saw in you? Like it would be tempting for them to say, sorry, HR made a mistake. Sorry to waste your time, you know, come back in three years or, you know, apply for our summer internship. Why do you think they? What did they see in you as an 18 year old that they were willing to give you a full time job and like you said, be the youngest at a APAC hire, graduate hire in the bank?
2: Mm. So I think, again, I guess to, to, set the, the context here is this was in 06, 07, mm-hmm. where uh, the economy was still still doing pretty good, right? This was mm. pre-GFC. And mm. I know from, you know, for uh, a, a number of like the younger listeners, you know, they they may not be aware how devastating that was at the time globally. Mm. But we, we had a very good, good run. I mean, Australia is what previously was on track to this year for 30 years of, you know, of economic growth. Mm. So at the time, I mean, um, look, it was a very, very good backdrop. Um, so going in, um, they had budget, you know, they had capacity to take me on. Also, I think I was, I was quite prepared. Um, again, you know, I, I kind of mentioned um, I'm, I'm no, by no means am I like a, a top tier student, um, but for me, it really comes down to effort. So um, yeah, just showing how prepared I, I was, mm-hmm. I think showing how mature I was, you know, especially at 18 years old, right? I mean, first, <laughs> first year, you know, I, 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 I did a ton of study. I mean, mm. corporate actions is a very niche area. Um, so I think just showing that, hey, like, you know, as an 18 year old, 18 year old I could be that prepared and that committed mm. and that mature. I feel like it probably gave them some security as well as obviously a, a probation period of six months. I think that kind of, you know, that's something I, I put forward, right? It's mm. not them saying, hey, would you, would you consider this? I said, look, like if it's a year, I'm happy to have to take that on, right? Mm. Give me a chance.
1: Yeah, and it's sort of fortuitous timing, right? Because if you had have actually waited until third year, fourth year, then you would have been right in the lull of the, the 9, 10, 2010 sort of bottom of the market, right? So you kind of came at the end of the boom time. So your actual cohort, I'm sure a lot of your other peers who graduated and then applied you know, two, three, four, five years later, would have kind of come entered a much different banking finance sort of world. That is a
2: great point, Derek, because um, we all know first year of uni is almost a write-off for most people mm. just because uh, 18 years old, driving a car, you know, red peas, hanging out with your maids at Macca's, you know. Um, but for myself, like I studied really hard. I did, you know, I did quite well. I had some, I had some pretty nice looking marks, but, um, you know, we all know that the first year subjects are a little bit easier. So it mm. definitely helps to, to, to have those uh, high distinctions and, and distinctions on your transcript.
1: Yeah, no, for sure. And and so, how long were you there? Were you in that sort of banking sector for, for a number of years or, or what was sort of the next couple of years of your career like?
2: So, the next couple of years um, was definitely a great time. I learned so much um, just working with people who are older than me, who, who um, you know, all, all, all ranges and, and all diversity and background, mm-hmm. right? Um, I worked with people who were, you know, just slightly older than me, you know, who had just graduated at, you know, 22, 23 and, and senior people on that VP level. Um, It was, it was a great experience. I did, um, I did two years there. I pretty much worked at the GFC. I think that's Mm -hmm. when uh, things started to take a little bit of a turn for for myself. Um, Again, right, because I got in my first first year of um, uni, one of the, um, I guess, the conditions of, of employment was really that I would uh, shuffle things around. I changed unis, so I actually mm-hmm. changed from uh, the University of Sydney to the University of New South Wales. Mm-hmm. They had just provided a better timetable for the Bachelor of Economics. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was essentially, you know, heading into work at uh, 6.30, 7 a.m. And I would clock off at, you know, 5 p.m. and make my way to, to Central to, you know, catch, catch a change to do a night class at, at uni. So that was my life for two years. Um, and I think it's, it's okay when it's under normal, normal uh, working conditions. But mm-hmm. once we moved into the GFC, um, I think that's when the hours really started to stretch my mark started to, to really um, just take a hit. And mm-hmm. I think just not having any social life like we are now, um, you know, un- under mm-hmm. the, the COVID lockdown situation it was really, really hard.
1: Yeah, and then so um, you finished your degree and, and then were you still in the banking sector? You moved out of banking. What was that, I guess, post-boom, you know, GFC sort of post-era um, in, in sort of your career in banking? Once you graduate, you sort of you finished your degree, you got some experience. What kind of came next?
2: Mm. So, um, again, I was actually still studying when I was working there and I was studying part-time mm-hmm. Um and, you know, just during this GFC, as my mark started to, to uh, really take a bit of a, a beating, um, we have to remember that during the GFC, they were saying this is the worst financial crisis the world has ever seen mm. in its history, um, that there would be ripple effects for decades and the, the whole entire landscape would change. And being impressionable at, what, 20 years old, um, I thought, okay, this is, this is it for finance, right? <laughs> I thought, okay, well, let's just, you know, I'm I'm almost there, let's go and finish my degree and maybe Mm -hmm. do a master's in in, in another field, right? Maybe Mm. become a lawyer or something like that. (laughs) So I went back to uni Mm. to full time to go and finish my degree and Mm -hmm. um, I had looked into creating a a corporation just Mm -hmm. as, I guess, um, I like to say a placeholder name Mm -hmm. um, and and really just play around. You know, I think when you're, you know, 20, 21, you know, you you have, for me at least, having tasted the corporate world, um, you know, this is really where Facebook and you know the whole Silicon Valley people starting you know, doing startups in their garage mm. and stuff um, started to take my interest, you know. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, I took a look and I guess just tried a, a bunch of different things and just spitballing, right? Um, yeah. And what
1: were some of those early business ideas, experiments, sort of little projects? Do you remember some of them, or can you describe a few? Yeah, I mean, I, I was
2: um, I was very into at the time uh, dropshipping, mm-hmm. so with you know, e-commerce was nothing near you know what it is today. It was it, it's much it's much more well developed now. Mm-hmm. Um, previously, uh, people were cons- people like my parents were concerned about putting their credit card details online mm. and not not trusting um, you know obviously viruses and whatnot. So, mm. um, I was really trying to capitalize on on that trend. So I had created a number of uh, drop, sh- drop shipping websites that would you know essentially um, place orders and you know, pick those orders across to manufacturers who would drop, provide drop shipping. So I set up a couple of those, um, tried to learn some HTML myself, um, a little bit of branding and whatnot. Um, they definitely did build some traction, but again, right, it's one of those things where you, you need to apply a lot of effort um, and the margins on just gen- retail in general, Is quite slim, regardless of whether you don't, uh, whether you have those overheads or not, Mm. with a retail shop front, um, yeah, and the rest.
1: Yeah, because you're still paying for ads, you're still spending a lot of time, you're still dealing with, you know, databases, software, like costs, subscriptions. So once you take all that out, and your your time and labor, it's sort of there's not not a lot left. Often is there until you get a big volume.
2: The products that we were that we were looking after was typically um, menswear, and Mm -hmm. and um, back then you know it was still a very nascent thing. I I think you know in Australia we've always had that blokey bloke sort of image, Um, especially back then. But there was definitely a trend of where men were starting to take an interest in cufflinks and. Um, hip flask and, you know, just, you know, the, the odd bits and pieces, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but these items would typically be, you know, uh, $20, $30. And, and as a dropshipper you know, your margins may be um, maybe 30%. So mm-hmm. on, on a $20 item, you're talking about $6, $6 of gross gross margin. Mm. Um, and then you got a, you know, a shipping then, you know, wasn't as if, as efficient as it is now. So the cost was still quite high, even if you shipped with, you know, um, TNT and, and, and all the rest. So definitely, mm. you know, you're, you may be left with $2 out of that transaction mm. uh, at,
1: the, at the end of the day. And so you tried a few different drop shipping type angles. Were there other businesses you tried or things outside of the sort of e-commerce drop shipping space?
2: Yeah. So, um, Mm, this one was my first real traction that I built. Um, it was a liquidation business. It didn't start off as a liquidation business. Uh, coming from the world of finance, um, I had looked you know, um, into essentially doing asset financing. So um, I didn't know it was called asset financing at the time. But essentially what I had noticed is I used to, be, I used to work in retail um, at a mobile phone store. And um, I had noticed that um, the boss would say, hey, you know, these goods are on consignment. You didn't make sure that the stop keeping is very accurate Mm. because we haven't bought the product, right? So Mm. anything that goes missing is assumed to have been sold, Mm. right? Um, So I think looking back, I had had decided to approach some of these smaller, I guess, uh, mom and pop, you know, computer shops, which was, you know, um, quite prevalent at the time, Mm -hmm. you know, and say, hey, you know, is there... Um, is there an opportunity here where I can help and put up some uh, capital for you to go purchase product? Because for them to go purchase product from their distributors, um, they would be able to um, get you know, discounts um, mm. you know, on wholesale volume. And um, some of them took me up on the offer. Um, little did I know that as, as a s- small business owner, um, they may be holding on to that particular SKU or that particular product for Uh, well beyond its its, uh, useful lifespan. So Mm -hmm. I never got the capital back on on some of those SKUs. So what I had started doing was saying, hey, well, look, this clearly isn't moving. So I'm going to actually call on the the collateral, right? So I had essentially taken back the collateral and sold it myself Mm -hmm. on eBay. Because these mom and pop shops was typically selling it on the retail, you know, on the street level. Mm
3: -hmm. Mm -hmm.
2: So eBay was still something that was quite new. Um, I guess globalization was still really coming into its full swing. Um and yeah, I found demand like, you know, in a couple of channels in Asia, uh, you know, Singapore, Malaysia, Hong Kong, who were saying, Oh, hey, you know, these are this is like discounted kind of product, it's end of life, but it's brand new, right? Mm. So yeah, it is brand new. And I had small quantities. So I had quantities of five and six of network cables, servers, mm. whatnot. Um and I would then go back to this mom and pop stuff, so like, okay. Well, this was the collateral the collateral that I put up. Um what's happening with the other product? I'm just curious, you know, and they were just saying, hey, you know, if you're interested, yeah, like we can work on something. You can take it off our hands, right? At, at a discounted rate. Um, and I guess they started, you know, step by step, they, I started to really understand like how um, distribution channels work because um, with distributors, they're, they're really just trying to pump product out. So slow moving products, they will, they will give, you know, some, some handsome incentives to, to their retail partners. And um, that's where I started, you know, working through them to purchase, Um, quantities of redundant Mm -hmm. end-of-life product and and have have them sold overseas. Um, And that's how that inventory management business really really started. And that was called uh, Morito.
1: Mm. And so you came through quite an interesting angle to tie together multiple threads it looks like. So you had a bit of a finance background, thinking about the economy, you're thinking about trade, you're thinking about uh, business, lending and then you've tried your hand at e-commerce, drop shipping, retail um, and then you've tried to combine the two to sort of do like financing, I guess a sort of trade financing and wholesale sort of financing but then it hasn't exactly worked the plan. Um, because obviously if they had sold it, then you would have gotten the money and it would have just scaled from there. But then you've pivoted again to sort of um, liquidation stock and then you've sort of tied all three of them together, I suppose, your own retail experience, your customer, brick and mortar, online and financing. So you've made this quite an interesting uh, convergence of about five separate areas and sort of learned, I guess, the whole supply chain and the whole sort of um, distribution, like you said, uh, sort of one step at a time. But it's actually... Um, complemented each other quite nicely to lead towards uh, what you're doing now
2: yeah no definitely and um, I think the the, I guess the common thread um, across those those different areas that you mentioned is um for me it was really looking at macro trends right Mm. the macro trend was globalization um won't stop right Mm -hmm. like us integrating with our, our partners um regionally um is, that's not going to end. Hmm. Um, and then the, the other thing was the internet, right? Try to do things that, um, you know, in terms of communication, right? Not, not walking door to door, right? Being hmm. able to send emails, being able to uh, facilitate, you know, uh, cross-border transactions through eBay and, and um, you know, transfer of funds and whatnot.
1: Yeah. And then, so, like you, again, you've had these small sort of side businesses, hobbies, ideas, you've worked a bit of corporate. Um, when did you decide to start Reflow Hub? And, and what was the first sort of 12 months of that journey, like, once you started
2: yeah. So with Merido as a liquidation uh, business, that really started taking off in 009, mm-hmm. I believe, oh nine oh ten, Um And I still remember the first day that, you know, uh, the first year that we turned over, over a million dollars, that was like a milestone for us. Um, it was super, just super happy. Just like, you know, you don't, you can't conceive mm-hmm. it. Um, and we had, you know, just tried to keep scaling, mm-hmm. tried to keep scaling that um in about 2015 so we did that for about four or five years we still do it today Mm -hmm. for about four or five years until 2015 um the business started to get other opportunities like by then we had we had built some reputation as a niche business within that liquidation space Mm -hmm. all consumer electronics so not just computers but um also like obviously phones and Mm -hmm. um you know obviously we know everyone has a phone nowadays um we had essentially started to get opportunities on return stock. So this is where you, know, you may have gotten a present you know, from a friend over Christmas. Um, you open it up and you're like, oh, these weren't the, head- the headphones that I like. Mm. Um, and you've opened them up and you've gone, oh, you know, this, is, this isn't wireless. You put it back in the box <laughs> and you, you want a refund. Um, at the time, you know, retailers would, would actually accept that. And um, they would just stock it up because this was really a... Um, uh, they call it a, a, a out of scope, you know, sort of um, SOP, right? Standard Operating Procedure. Mm. So they wouldn't have a, they wouldn't actually have a home for it. and They would build it up, you know, in the warehouse over time. And essentially, as a friends and family deal, internally, people would go and pick out, oh, you know, th- th- these are brand new beats that, you know, will return. They're purely, they're they're working, mm-hmm. and you'd pick it up on the cheap, right, for twenty, thirty percent, whatever.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And um, being a liquidator, uh, being a liquidator of brand new product, they were saying, hey, Terence. Um, you know, would you be interested in buying this product? I mean, it's virtually brand new, but the boxes, you know, it's just been opened and and whatnot. Um, I said, look, sure enough, you know, let me take a look at it and and see what we can do. We we already had established some of these, um, some of our distribution channels overseas. So who are more, more price sensitive countries Mm -hmm. like the Philippines and Indonesia, Mm -hmm. they still want branded product. They still want Apple, they still want Samsung, they still want Beats. Um, And they weren't too fussy with, you know, oh, the box has a bit of a crumple Mm. or, um, you know, like, you know, the, the, um, the box has been open or something Mm -hmm. like that. So, so as that, um, I guess that category and that side of the business really grew from 2015, 16 and 17, um, we said, you know what, we should, we should probably take a deeper look into this.
3: Mm-hmm. And the reason is
2: because my thinking at the time um, was really focused on the retail price of, use ma- of, of mobile phones. Mm-hmm. And Apple, with the long queues of people lining up and you know, all the fanfare behind it, mm-hmm. people started trading the product. I'm not sure if you actually remember this, this, um, this time. Um, people would line up, they would buy more than two, and they would then quickly flip it on eBay or flip it on um, Gumtree yeah, or something I d- like I that. Yeah, I do
1: remember that. And they would sort of, yeah, for huge prices because people would not want to line up for four days, but they want to be the first one to say they have it. But they'll pay, yeah, maybe five or ten times what the actual cost was, but they save the four days in the cold outside the Apple store. Yeah, I remember that.
2: Definitely, and we, we saw that from that point onwards, with that much hype and that much exclusivity with Apple mm. specifically, um, they started to increase their their prices for their mobile phones. And I'm mm. sure enough, today mm. to to buy you know a, a top end iPhone, you're probably looking at like two thousand dollars, mm. right? And that's that's, that's not a small change anymore. <laughs> um, you know, little Johnny definitely isn't getting a, getting a brand new iPhone mm. under, un, under the tree, you know, mm. uh, this Christmas. So. Um, But because we saw this trend, right, um, this multi-year trend of the average selling price of mobile devices across the board, including Samsung, increased, um, we said, surely there is residual value here, right? Mm -hmm. Um, All you have to do is look at the secondhand market Mm -hmm. for used cars Mm -hmm. to know that if the value of the item is large enough, there will be some residual value. Um, And obviously, we started touching on returns. So touching on returns with the, the retailer, we knew that there is... A market overseas, at least overseas, for used or near new product. Mm-hmm. We just didn't know how far we could go, right? So, you've in terms of used product, you've got um, you've got product that's like you know untouched, but mm-hmm. you know can't be sold as new, mm-hmm. all the way down to the product is actually faulty. Mm. right and,
1: and, and, and it needs a repair and it needs refurbishment and, and that sort of thing somebody would have to spend to get it up to scratch but it's a lot cheaper than buying a brand new one and once they replace a part or fix it it's sort of it's um it's still workable and usable
2: yeah definitely so we expanded beyond the retailer you know like your 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 big box retailer mm-hmm. um and we started to look for the in the obvious places which is the uh, the mobile phone carriers, right? Mm-hmm. Your Vodafone, Optus, Telstra of the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's where we started to have some serious conversation to have a look at uh, what they actually had on their balance sheet, um, and provide some host, you know, provide some uh, consolidated offers to to take that off um, off their balance sheet and out of their warehouses because um, you know warehouse space it costs money it costs money for people to to any motion in a warehouse so mm. uh, they were quite happy for us to to go and, and help them. Um, at that point in time, uh, get rid of rubbish. Right? What, that's, what that's were they, they
1: doing before you were there? How would they d- get rid of process, sell, liquidate those surplus? What were the telcos doing prior to you? How were they solving that problem?
2: So even to this day, some of them still run the same process. It's called a tender process. Mm-hmm. Essentially, they would aggregate um, volume of this and then periodically sell it off. Mm-hmm. Um, it is a little bit different today, just because um, I think it's it's no surprise that with the average selling price being so high, there is a market for this. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, but back then, they would just periodically, you know, I guess. Um, uh, auction it off mm-hmm. for, recy- for for recycling and people would harvest for the parts, you know, the mm. plastic and the bits of gold in it and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, but now it's definitely more about, uh, rather than recycling, it's more about repair, right? So as you, as you uh, mentioned before, it's about, oh, okay, look, simply re- changing the battery mm-hmm. and then it'll be working, right? And that just unlocks some value out of it.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and so once you, was it a sudden uptick in growth once you really kind of, again, you played around with different things from trade to commerce to distribution. It sounds like you're sort of iterating quite a bit. You're getting feedback. Was it slow and sort of steady growth or was it sort of up and down and then sort of in the last year or two, it really um, rocketed up?
2: So I would say the numbers were always quite quite small. So even from Marito, when we're looking at it, I think we'll maybe tens of thousands, maybe, you know, Let's say, just to put a number on it, maybe thirty, forty thousand um, 40,000 a year, which mm-hmm. is tiny, like tiny in the wide scheme of things. Mm-hmm. But I think um, us doing that ex- exploration and, and really having um, that curiosity into how big is this market and, and um, following the thread, right? And just sort of discovering, hey, you know like trying to figure it all out because it really is like the fog of war. Like you don't know until you're actually, you're in that position. So it was actually quite small to begin with. Um, We had just spun off a different company just because we thought there was a lot of potential there. Mm -hmm. Um, Once we started to see see and do research on companies like Mazuma, who were, I think, one of the innovators in this space about Mm -hmm. doing the buybacks, um, used to do TV ads late at night Mm -hmm. to say, you know, um, sell your phone online to us, et cetera, et cetera, like your old phone. Mm -hmm. And um, once we started to look into that, we we quickly realized that, hey, there is an opportunity here, especially because we were looking at um, near new returns. So mm. your A and your B and product. How far it went down to you know, C, D, E and F, we, we weren't sure at the time. Um, so to, to begin with, it was quite slow. But because we had a bit of some of the expertise uh, and we also had the network, mm-hmm. um, once we were able to brand and and to, I guess refine our pitch, we were definitely able to to scale that quite rapidly um, to what it is today.
1: Yeah. And how were you feeling during this whole journey? Because in some ways, obviously, when you look back, you can see all the logical steps from finance to retail to e-commerce to secondhand markets. But, but at the time, did you feel like you were kind of going nowhere? Again, maybe some of your friends or colleagues were in sort of corporate jobs. You're, you're learning, but it's slow. You kind of get some success and, and things. Did you feel like you were succeeding and, and progressing? Or did you sometimes feel you're sort of spinning your wheels and you might go down a dead end and the whole thing's kind of not what you thought it was? What was that sort of emotional journey like?
2: So I've, I've just always done things that in, in, intrigue me. Um, I would, you know, read a book about trees. You know, I would read, you know, like anything that would capture my interest, right? And it's not necessarily from a, how can I utilize this information? How can I monetize it? So mm. for me, I've always pursued my curiosities. Um, I am very thankful that, you know, by working working at the bank, I was able to save, um, mm-hmm. you know, some some money so that when I did go back to uni and, and you know, just play around with these ideas, I was never... Um, I was never worried about the next meal. Um, Mm. I wasn't, you know, wealthy or anything like that, but, um, money has never been a great motivator. Mm. Uh, It's always been trying to figure out how things work, what levers do I need to pull? What dials do do I need to, to key up and really see the cause and effect. So I think coming from that standpoint, it was a fantastic journey. Um, just whenever you, you have a hypothesis, you go out and test it. It doesn't work. You're like, okay, you're scratching your head whiteboard time. Mm. But when it does, in, you're like, Oh, is this, is this correlation or is this causation? And then once you get that positive feedback, you're like, Oh wow, it works. Mm. And it's no longer a hypothesis. It's a theory. And you can go in and you can really start to, um, you know, add on to that, that, that theory, right. That has, that has always been my primary uh, motivator. Um, learning and just continually feeding it back in. So all the profit that has been generating by by these various businesses has always been poured back into um, additional R&D and and just scaling the business.
1: Yeah, and I imagine that... the best element then is sort of that control like if you were in a big company and you said hey i've got this great idea for how we can handle our banking customers they might say well yeah you're not in charge of new product it's, we don't want to change that and, and and you would sort of spend a lot of your time trying to convince people. whereas with this is mm-hmm. it's your business you know obviously there are limits but within reason you can sort of turn the dials yourself right because it's your own money your own business that's going to go up or down
2: hundred mm, percent. So marito has, um, ever since, you know, as a liquidation business has been profitable. Um, I'm very thankful for that because mm. look, again, that, that really takes off the, the concern or the focus on profit. Um, as long as it's generating, you know, enough for us to, to, um, go about our business and to, to fuel our hobbies almost, you know, mm. then, then, you know, I'm, I'm happy with that. Um, like, and just, yeah, just again, like from a, you know, what you kind of contrasting with, you know, if I was in corporate, I think, being so young and experiencing the corporate world, I realized, you know, it wasn't as open as, mm-hmm. as um, you could be. And then that's because its reputation, it's coming across, you know, competent. Um, I feel like, you know, it, it's natural. Mm-hmm. It's only natural. Uh, but I think that's just one thing about, you know, really just really enjoying about being your own business. Um, being a business owner is mm. just being able to say, I don't know, right? Mm. I don't have the answers. Like, you know, not necessarily from a cop-out perspective, um, but just really say, hey, you know, we don't know today. But let's go and figure this out, right? Let's mm. let's let's put down our ego and put down our, our, our guard and just say, hey, let's try to figure this out. Like, you know, almost like a classroom, right? Like, mm. you know, have, having that childlike mind.
1: Yeah, and obviously it's worked well because um, uh, your company grew one thousand two hundred and forty-seven percent last financial year, and has done sixty million in annual turnover, making you the second fastest growing new business. Um, in Australia which is obviously a fantastic accomplishment like you mentioned really kind of hitting your stride after a lot of tinkering and what was that like to do that you know literally 10 xing 12 xing um, growth in 12 months and, and rocketing to the number two spot on the list how what was the the good and the bad of that sort of um, rapid acceleration and growth yeah um, Let's start off with the bad. The bad is I am not a good manager. Um, <laughs>
2: um, I have a lot of curiosities. I follow, I follow all leads, all prospects um, coming from like, you know, if I've, I've got multiple hypotheses going on mm. at the same time, sometimes they overlap, sometimes they don't. Um, so anyone working with me, you know, I apologize sincerely to them because they, they really put up with me. Um, but I think, you know, that's just where one of the positives really come in because um, at Merida as a liquidation business, right, you're really a broker. Um, you're, you're really flicking, flicking through your Rolodex and making these deals happen. Fantastic. It's fun. Um, it's challenging. A lot of spreadsheet work, a lot of pricing work. But like with with Reef the Hub as a marketplace, um, you know, I'm out of my depth. I'm not a developer. I'm not a coder. Yeah. I'm not a product manager. I'm not an operational specialist. Um, so bringing these people in who, who can really perform, you know, in their respective fields, um, number one, I think opens my eyes to um, the appreciation to be a specialist because mm-hmm. I, I believe in quite a generalist myself.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, and also just building a team, like building a, a team that um, is hard. I think that's good and bad because you, you, I think you become more attuned to the people side of things and going, hey, it's not purely mechanical and robotic like a system. Mm-hmm. It, there's actually quite a lot of... Um, just dynamic, you know, social elements that hey, do they jibe well? Do they communicate on the same level? Um, you know, who's who's a morning person? Who's an afternoon person? <laughs> I, I, figuring all that out is, is has been really, really fun um, because when you get on a roll, it's you know,
1: it, it's fantastic. Um, yeah. And so you mentioned the the management side and I'm assuming that the people management side being one of the big challenges. Did you have a, a hypothesis, so to speak, about hiring, running a team that was then shattered by the reality of actually hiring and sort of running that team that sort of made you realise it wasn't a sort of a strong point of yours? Um,
2: I don't think there would be one instance. There'd definitely be, I think, a lot on the daily. I think mm-hmm. I definitely learnt that. Um, I think I've never been that sort of person to Uh, to begin with, but I think I definitely learned that being a manager is hard work um, because you're not doing the work. So for you to really go and encourage your team to try to reach this big audacious goal, uh, it can be a bit daunting because it it feels like you're you're prodding them. Mm.
3: Um,
2: But I think that's where I I learned that, hey, you know, like giving them the, the tools and the environment to really go and experiment and not having double standards. So if they're allowing them to say, I don't know, like, Mm -hmm. you know, um, is really liberating. So, um, in terms of finding out when I wasn't a good manager, I think pretty early on when we would, flip through four or five different, you know, software tools, um, from Trello, you know, uh, we we finally settled on, 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 Airtable to, to mm-hmm. manage our work, but, um, the workflows would change. Um, and, and partly to do with just the, the rapid growth of experience, mm-hmm. like it just smashes through all your workflows, right. Um, mm. uh, from something that is, for example, manual to begin with, that is, that is capable to be done ad hoc, um, to saying, Hey, we need to have a semi or fully automated solution for that specific workflow. Um, it's just a part. It's it's you know it's a part of the process of building a startup and and just getting that positive feedback and learning from it.
1: Yeah, and then on the positive side, obviously, again, being literally the second fastest growing new business in Australia, huge accomplishment. How does that feel? I mean, has there been a lot more attention, even though it's a niche B two B sort of not your mainstream, relatable sort of pack consumer packaged goods or you know app or, or sort of consumer facing product that's a household name. Um, Has that sort of changed, I mean your business, hiring people, promoting clients, um, other aspects by getting that recognition publicly of how successful and how quickly you've grown?
2: I think it definitely helps when you have some public recognition. Um, Luckily, I'm not externally motivated so whether I'm in a sexy business or not, um, it it doesn't bother me too much. Mm but definitely, it does help open doors. It has, um, I guess, just validated you, right? I mean, whenever you speak to someone who's um, an acquaintance and um, they may have heard of you or if you 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 know, if kind of, I guess, do a, a quick check on each other, um, it, it does validate each other. And you say, mm. okay, well, look, it's a serious conversation we're going to have then, right? Mm. Um, it does help. But to be honest, I've never really looked at those sort of things when I talk to people because it really is on merit. It's really about exploring together an idea.
3: Mm. Um,
2: so I try not to focus too much on the accolades and I try not to focus too much on the, on the validation because, um, yes, I'm, we may have become, we may have been, uh, the number two this year. Um, but has it changed anything like really? No, no, it mm. hasn't. Um, we continue to have our heads down and, and try to solve the problem. And, um, yeah, just on that whiteboard, that whiteboard that's been used, you know, ever since, <laughs> you know, um, uh, yeah, just, just trying to ideate.
1: Mm. And so zooming out a little bit, we've talked a bit about macro trends and the bigger picture. What do you see entrepreneurs, entrepreneurship in Australia doing well versus other countries? And and where do you see perhaps room for improvement or missed opportunities or extra room to grow?
2: I think there's, um, I think I'll start with the good first is mm-hmm. globalization, the internet, I guess the acceptance of entrepreneurship and startups as a legitimate, I wouldn't say career path, but mm-hmm. as a legitimate option for young people is Mm -hmm. great. Um, I don't think you would be able to imagine that 30, 40 years ago. I mean, you would be crazy, Um, but it seems like a fashionable thing to do nowadays. Um, Mm -hmm. I guess that's on the, the big spectrum. Um, but I guess even on a on a daily sort of more side hustle, right? I think it's fantastic to be able, maybe not in this current um, environment, you know, with the health health crisis going on, but I think just being able to just, you know, potentially drop ship or to potentially have your own YouTube channel, your own podcast, you know, <laughs> um, you know, just to really be able to pursue interest, right? Like mm. the monetization will come um, if there's product market fit, mm. right? Um, but I think it's really allowed people to, to go and um, to just go in an and experiment and to pursue their hobbies from a development standpoint, um, I think there's not enough people pursuing at the moment. Um, like in terms of, uh, yeah, I, I still am not entirely sure about this. I feel like it, it's a cultural. It's sorry, not a cultural, It's a generational thing mm. where a lot of the the up and comers, um, you know, coming out of high school and uni, they're just they were born with a mobile phone in their hand. They were born with a laptop mm. and they were born with Netflix and on-demand mm. everything um, with Tinder and Bumble and all mm-hmm. the rest, mm-hmm. right? And it, it does change their consumption uh, and their trends. So I think just sort of looking at, looking at it from a generational point of view, I feel like um, it may be quite difficult for this generation to really see the potential of the tools that they have um, to be a creator and not just a consumer.
1: And do you think, I mean, part of that is maybe people aren't motivated to put in the long term, like in, for yourself, literally a, a decade plus of tinkering, experience, hustles, sort of ups and downs, experimenting. Um, do you think part of that people that grow up sort of now, maybe someone who's sort of 16 or 18 now or even younger, they're so used to everything working straight away as a consumer versus creating something and the effort that goes into understanding well what was it like manually who are people a bit older who remember the pre you know uber taxi experience the pre you know app dating experience the pre you know xyz experience um you know people remember renting vhs tapes and driving there and not clicking a button is that part of you think as well i guess delayed gratification side of things
2: yeah no no. um definitely i think with with the generation today, um, everything's at their fingertips, mm. and it feels a little bit like magic, right? Um, and I think when you when if you haven't had the opportunities to um, apply yourself and invest and to realize, hey, it's not that easy. Mm. Um, you know, like with, with with Tinder, that's really changed, like even how how they approach relationships. Mm. Um, it's it's just changed the entire dynamics. I think so. I definitely think it's something to do with. Um, with effort. Um, Again, like I I know I've mentioned effort early on. I think when something is not, doesn't come so easily, when it works, you're over the moon. Mm. Um, So I think it's like very much like, you know, any sort of competitive sport, it's not good enough to just win it or be good at it. You know, you want to compete against another team that wants it just as bad. Mm. And that just makes winning a trophy or winning the game just that much sweeter. So I think it's that competition and, and you having a take a chance at not actually being able to to get what you want Hmm. is where the reward is.
1: Hmm. No, that's a really good point. And and so, I guess on that point, to a a 16, 18, 20-year-old listening today or even perhaps a younger version of yourself, um, what advice would you give sort of looking back and again, reflecting on uh, where someone who's that age might be you know, in the, the current Economy, the current world, the current sort of environment. Um, what would you sort of give them? Again, having been a little bit further down the road, and then looking back with your current knowledge.
2: Yeah. um So I would definitely say read more. Um, you know, like we have just so many different mediums now to consume. Podcast being one of them. It's mm-hmm. still fantastic, um, but I think it's still passive, right? You're still listening mm-hmm. or you're watching, uh, like YouTube, for example. Mm-hmm. But like I think with reading, it, it like you can't read when you're tired because nothing sticks. Mm. So again, it's that, that sort of effort, right? Like when you apply yourself to it, um, whatever required that investment of your effort or your time, um, or, or money,
3: mm-hmm.
2: um, you really try to get a return out of it. So definitely read more broadly. Um, I think read more curi- like just be more curious, right. Mm. And, and not necessarily coming at an angle and oh, how can I monetize that? Cause very much like what you said earlier, um, during this episode is, um, my success today has been a confluence of things. And mm. if I wasn't curious, I wouldn't have taken steps that were unnecessary. I wouldn't have, you know, I wouldn't have been so blasé about, you know, just learning as much as I could. Mm. It would be, okay, well, what is the ROI of, of this step and, and just doing comparisons. Um, so yeah, definitely like, you know, read more and just be more curious. Um, I'd say, yeah, have a bias towards action, right? Mm-hmm. Just do things. So I think by, by just, you know, action just breeds action and that's mm-hmm. momentum. And I, that's where like, you know, feedback cycles come in. So I, I definitely recommend those, those two things. And I think just lastly, like um, I think now that the society is way more open to, you know, depression and, and just like, you know, a lot of the, the mental issues that, mm-hmm. you know, uh, that is prevalent. Um, I think it's just fantastic to be able to be more introspective, not just alone, but also together and, mm. and just to be able to discuss this right so things like mindfulness meditation Mm -hmm. um and and things like yoga right just to really be able to uh, connect with yourself and just be be Mm. um, self-aware and connected with others
1: yeah so it's sort of like read to expose yourself like you're saying to different hypotheses ideas explore things you're curious about But then don't stay in your head just with a bunch of ideas. Go and test them in in the real world, in the marketplace, to actually validate or null the the different ideas because you'll learn either way. And then sort of like you said, do the next action, the next idea, while also maintaining your sort of mental, physical health to obviously not not implode while you're you're doing the other two pieces. Um, No, really good, really good perspective, I think. Um, and, and then so we've talked about macro trends, we've talked about uh, adjusting, we've talked about obviously all, all the different sort of simultaneous and consecutive experiments you've run across different businesses. What does the next five to 10 years look like for Reflow Hub at, at a high level vision, at a particular goal, ambition, uh, direction? Where do you sort of see the future and, and the trends and, and you know where you want to take the business?
2: Yeah, so uh, today, Reflow Hub is really focused on its marketplace. So our ability to remarket, use mobile phones um, into the global economy Mm -hmm. uh, from all the various channels. So whether it be from retailers, distributors, or the telcos themselves, all the way to potentially the consumer. Um, This is not just from a commercial perspective, but it's also from a um, sustainability perspective, right? I think Mm. the environment is, um, first and foremost, like something that is pressing for us. Um, and and for the future generations. So for us to really have a voice, um, we need to be able to, I guess, deepen our integration along with that industry. Um, It is still still something that we're not doing well collectively. So um, in order for us to sort of have a, a larger voice in the industry, um, we need to get involved in with not just the software, not just facilitating through the internet and globalization, but to really have a physical presence. And what, am I, what I mean by that is having investing in a processing facility and um, in, in just you know, investing in like you know, just our CapEx in terms of um, being environmentally sustainable. So getting the necessary certifications and really driving that um, across that global industry standard.
1: So so part of that, I suppose, is a uh, supply chain consolidation, whereas now you have a supplier who does that, but then you can't really control how well are they doing it, how efficiently, how sustainably. But if you own that aspect, additional uh, sort of cog in the chain, you can then influence, improve, optimize, innovate on that space. Is that right?
2: Yeah. And uh, that's a wink-wink to blockchain.
1: (laughs) And, and well, I mean, if you've got a moment, is that an uh, area where you're sort of exploring in terms of, again, you hear it, people, some people just sort of speculating on it for, for sort of the, the financial side, but you hear other people mention for the supply chain side, but often a lot less because people are very um, much more attracted to the stories of someone buying one Bitcoin when it was cheap, selling it when it's gone up a thousand percent. But um, from a sort of supply chain point of view, how do you see or how have you already sort of used um, blockchain elements?
2: Yep, totally. So I think that's where us trying to get involved and get more integrated with the global supply chain mm-hmm. um, will potentially allow um, the adoption of blockchain. And there is a there is a disincentive at the moment, right? Because mm-hmm. we don't know um, how large enterprises are handling their their product. Are they doing it in an environmentally safe way? We don't actually know, right? Um, but if you this is probably a number of decades ago and probably some may remember is where it was exposed that Gap and Nike were using sweatshop factories, mm. right? And um, some of the, their conditions were horrible. And I think that that definitely affected their brand. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a PR crisis for them. Mm-hmm. Um, but also it, it kind of, as a society, it, it collectively said, hey, is it worth having having people work in these conditions so that, you know, a t-shirt is $3 cheaper or mm. $5 cheaper? like you know where who's who's actually paying that cost so i think from a supply chain perspective blockchain isn't attractive um because it it would i guess air out their their potentially dirty laundry i mean mm-hmm. at, even at this that we don't know so i think blockchain will, will enable us to build that transparency into the process um, and be all accountable not necessarily from a monetization perspective mm-hmm. of like you know bitcoin and tokens mm. and whatnot but just from a, a, a transparency perspective, that we, we as a you know, public ledger all agree on, on something has moved hands and will move down the chain.
1: Yeah. So, so you see it as an industry that, again, may be reluctant. Like, again, they would be against transparency because it might shine a light on things of their supply chain, which they would rather no one ask about. Like I said, so sort of sweatshops in, in the manufacturing space. Um, so you would sort of see yourself or someone else needing to kind of take the lead, I suppose, and use that as a differentiator to say, hey, here's how we can prove we're, we're sort of ethical, sustainable, um, and, and use it that way and then hope to sort of shift the industry. But you don't see it versus something where everyone implements a software, suddenly everything's cheaper and better and, and easier. So everyone, there's an incentive for everyone to get on board versus here there's sort of a disincentive to actually get on board for a lot of people in the industry.
2: Mm. And just to be clear, um, it's not that every large enterprise who is not looking at this space has anything to hide. Mm. Um, it's just like, I guess it's just a life stage of a business, right? Mm. I mean, as, as, an, as an upstart for us, um, we can afford to build something like this, right? We're not tearing down our existing infrastructure to rebuild. Mm. We are... Uh, all we're trying to do is just keep a, an eye on the horizon to, to do what is right for not only um, our stakeholders and I think growingly for a lot of industries, right? Their stakeholder includes the environment, even mm. though it's a uh, non empty
1: Yeah, absolutely. And you're right. There's always a lot of legacy costs in a business. That it, you know, It's easier for a smaller, more agile, newer business to actually do something different and to be sort of lead with that. Versus someone who's got a lot of legacy commitment, obligations, costs, you know, training, things, people involved in that, having to sort of self-cannibalise in order to um, to change. So it's you're right. There's a lot of inertia in a, a big moving system. And just to wrap us up, do you have any final words, thoughts about anything personal, business, um, in general, that you'd like to leave the audience with?
2: Um, I think it could be a bit cliche, but I just like to, you know anyone who is interested in entrepreneurship. You know, it is super hard. Um, just just put in the effort. Um, I guess do it if you can maintain that perspective of um, you're doing it to entertain and to fulfill your curiosity mm. to pull the thread. Um, I guess you can't propel yourself forward just with pressure alone. Mm. Um, I, I think that's that's helpful from a mental mental health standpoint. So just keep it light, lighthearted. And, mm. and um, you, know, if you need to maintain your, your nine to five in order to, you know, in, to pursue, um, pursue like other avenues and other hobbies, then, then, then do so. Yeah. But definitely, I think like we aren't, we aren't looking at side hustles. We aren't looking at, um, you know, just um, side projects in general enough, I think.
1: Mm. because like you said yeah that's sort of the beginning of an idea which you know a decade later could lead to something but if you never did your first little drop shipping your first little sort of project um even when you're just messing around in in your bedroom like you'd never on your laptop you'd never kind of expand beyond that right like if you don't have that initial curiosity and and little side sort of uh, Mm. project
2: yeah um and we didn't really quite touch on it today but um there is no start no startup that um, essentially comes off the bat making money, right? Because Mm. if they were to, um, the unit economics would just not make sense. Mm. So you can't have that profitability from the onset in the first, I don't want to say one year, but Mm. from the first stage of like your, your idea, right? You're going to go through a number of iterations to, to then work out, you know, Hey, we've got traction. Mm. Now let's worry about like the profitability side, because you need it to be self-funding. So if you take it from a curiosity perspective, from a, like, hey, like, let's just make it work. Let's make this mm. system, like this business, work, right? You're gonna have way more success. And whether it be, for example, generate. Let's just do one podcast. Mm. Let's do a second podcast, and three, and, and you you get a series, a beautiful series out of that.
1: Yeah, no, excellent point. Thanks so much, Terence, for coming on the podcast. Really appreciate your time and insights.
0: Yeah, no, thank you so much, Derek. Thank you for listening. I would really appreciate it if you subscribe to the podcast in iTunes and leave a review. Better yet, tell a friend about it who you think may enjoy the content and get something useful out of it. Feedback, comments, likes or dislikes, you can reach me by emailing Derek, D-E-R-E-K, at futureofaustralia.com or you can call or text me on 0404-689-897. Thank you.